You don't have to go like, I'm going to build an isolated air gap network in a physical data center outside of Dulles, but you might have to do these additional things that can leverage what you've already built, but having that defined and right. understanding what those differences are and what the purpose and the drivers are behind that. Welcome to the Lojo Show. Thank you for joining us. We are habitually complacent. Mondaloni has a second name. It's M-A-Y-E-R. What? There's always a persistent threat. There is no monopoly on good ideas when it comes to cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lojo Show. Today, I have Robert Odin with us. Robert is currently with uh, Roblox, but he has an interesting history. One of the things we try to do here at the Lojo Show is really bring in folks and uh, leaders in our industry who have that that developmental progression in their careers, right? From whether military to being commercial from that end, going into some of their first jobs as far as within the commercial ranks and then making their way up as far as working in this new cyber world. A lot going on in the world right now. Uh, a lot of things that are applicable as well to what we're going to talk about today and where we want to be able to address this. You know, the idea is to one, create a safe, secure and compliant environment for us to continue to exist in, whether that's in our products, our everyday lives or in our corporate lives too. So Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So Robert, give us a little bit more about your background there. I just did a, just a quick uh, peek, yeah. but I think you probably tell the story better than I do. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I really appreciate getting a chance to share my experience. So I am approaching about 20 years experience within information technology and cybersecurity and a number of the job families within cybersecurity. I started in 2004 with the United States Air Force in a role called a computer network cryptograph switching systems. And that is as a mouthful as you can imagine was if it had RAM or compute, we were responsible from intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, ISR to long haul transport like data centers and the such. That allowed me to transition into cybersecurity being a component of my job for those seven years to a focus as an information system security engineer for uh, the NSA at the time. And then I spent about eight years in the intelligence community doing roles at ISI or information security engineer to information system security management. So instead of the hardening and locking down network systems and data stores, looking at managing for both uh, compliance from regulatory as well as business processing, where I was able to get selected with the National Insider Threat Task Force as a cybersecurity SME from kind of my background with the focus on the confidentiality of information. Uh, from there, I was able to do some consultation working with uh, Booz Allen Hamilton and then a transition to more of a full commercial experience with Harris and then L3 Harris uh, as the data protection and insider threat security architect at Harris. And I was there for a little over six years and from that experience designing and implementing solutions for both the insider threat the confidentiality and protection of data leakage or data handling as well as data protection so how do we build in safeguards for sensitive data i was fortunate enough from my experience and time there to transition yet again into tech 
with starting with Meta as a security program manager, as the security domain owner for data security for both the regulatory space that they were working in, specifically security for privacy. So combining data security and data privacy concepts. And then, which has led me to my current role as a data security engineer here at Roblox, working on holistic solution to protect data based off of sensitivity for both privacy, uh, confidentiality, as well as the rest of the CIA triad of integrity and availability. So if there's data that could have an impact, putting in and right sizing the safeguards at the right level in the right spot for that to empower our community to do the things that they need to do, but do it safely and securely. And so, and even so that the company itself can be the good data steward of the data that we hold and we're using it responsibly. So that was a mouthful, Flojo. <laughs> no, man, I mean, I think the most important thing for most people to know where they came from, what they're doing and where it's a bird applies these days. Now, Roblox, yes. I've got kids that are, you know, eight and 11 years old. Uh, so, you know, most folks hear Roblox and are like, oh, my kid plays that. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> so, so does my seven and four year old. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as, as well as friends of mine, because we've spent the last six months aging up our platform. So still maintaining the regulatory protections, right? So for COPA, which protects children 13 and under in the U.S., for those and still having that vibrant space for them, but also creating spaces for you know, or more adult theme like horror or first person shooters so mm -hmm. that people like you and I can have an experience as we would play as an adult, but the same platform that a children can play and then they're not hearing, well, maybe some of the adult conversations you would have in a game right beside you. Right, right. Now, what else does Roblox do though? Like we've got, you know, we know we've got the game portion, we know we yeah. have that, but there's so much more that actually goes on there that's there what is what is that what are what are some of those highlights there and Absolutely. You know, how are we benefiting for that too as far as just even from a consumer standpoint as yeah. well as others yeah so really interesting uh it's roblox is not a, a gaming company right we're a platform organization that does the hosting of experiences some of it is very much game some of it is someone wants to highlight we doing partnerships with gucci for fashion and people to express their creativity. So it's almost like you can see Roblox as kind of a two tier, right? You have you and I as just regular people coming on just as you would access like a YouTube and go see channels and uh, but what we call experiences that are, which is the other side of Roblox is where we have this creator space to where people can create experiences, whether it's replication of their favorite uh, place or puzzles or games or just hangout locations so we it, we looked at it as like how do we empower people to create um, whatever they want to create and then we allow other players such as you know my kids you and me to come in and experience those those environments and then with that you have the undercurrents of the economy right so how do we how do we benefit people for hey i want to create something that's really popular and i want to be rewarded for my time in the form of what we call robux and so we also have that avenue so we allow uh, people to upvote right with roblox so i as a user i 
spend money so my kids can go and then they can go and say hey there's things with the experience that i like or i want a limited hat or something like that and so we give that avenue for them to you know make those purchases and those people who create it right the other side of that to be able to financially benefit from their creations and either whether it's an experience or something like that so there's an incentive model for you know we we don't have to figure out what people want we give the tools and capabilities and a lot of our investment is making for stability as well as the creativity giving people to do lighting sound anything they want to do empowering them to be able to do that better or to do it in ways that they've never done before so that people can come and like hey this is this is really awesome i can fly i can you know do i can create my own pets and like games like adopt me that's really popular and it's really kind of that empowering so that's you know i think it's a really interesting thing it's so it's not just oh i'm going to you know a video game and it's a this is this you know this video game or this video game but no it's an entire you pick your own adventure so we've had terms kind of like metaverse and for the community and culture right so wherever the avatars that you create there's consistency through the different experiences so it's almost like you're going through your own multiverse and so that's what i think is like really cool of what we're doing here at roblox for having the consistency of the experience for the players but also empowering players to become creators themselves and create these experiences in such a way and then be able to benefit from their creation coming from being a kid in the 90s that saw <laughs> the movies where people could enter their own little world and build their own little world and have their own you know their their own spin and stuff on it it just it, it strikes me as absolutely nuts now that it, we're experiencing that right at the yeah. level and degree that's there and the other part as well as being able to benefit from like your time with robux and stuff too that comes along yeah, with can, it, right yeah can, can, can you know hey i created something it's great it's awesome i get bragging rights but now i can monetize it now hey this is super popular people are coming now i'm benefiting it's kind of similar to like a youtube like hey you made some channels and people are watching and viewing now you're you're because you're creating something of value you're able to benefit from that value creation right all right and so with that your community is how big now i mean when we talk about the overall interactions now yeah so in september i believe we just did our public release numbers and we're a little bit over 70 million daily users right so you know for a company that's only a couple thousand people that scale and impact is, is kind of mind-boggling that is completely mind-boggling it, it really is i mean you are you know, you're larger than some European countries. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I leave the player count, yes. <laughs> now, the challenges that come along with this, you know, yeah, obviously we talked about some of the cool things and the good things about it, but, you know, the, the other part is, is that as we are experiencing this, whether you're talking meta or even in, in, in Roblox and stuff too at this point, you know, there is this unique overlap of both data security and privacy that's there take me through kind of what you what you're starting to see as some of the mounting challenges as this continues to grow and as that community again as it continues to monetize itself therefore it does become a target at some point so just to some yeah. some of the things that you guys are 
that you face on a daily basis and what you're trying to do as far as to you know address what are the risks and stuff to user community developers as well as just kind of overall even the those that are sitting kind of in that blast radius for you guys now yeah so actually there's about three different focuses right that are all coming to head so first and foremost when you think of a game or a platform or environment like Roblox versus trust and safety, right? So civility, content moderation, making sure individuals who might not have the best interest, right? Trying to scam, predatory, whatever have you. Child safety, right? My children play on this. I want to make sure they're in an environment that people aren't trying to exploit them for financial gain or for any other nefarious purposes. So you have that element of it. And again, it's the the people that who are playing can also be a risk or a threat. On the other side, you have the traditional cybersecurity. I, whether you're having like the game engine from cheat or malware from there, or people who are trying to front waste and abuse, uh, either they get upset, so they want to do like a logic bomb or a denial of service to take down the other cybersecurity element of it from application, network, data security, you know, all the different platforms from here, as well as your regulatory constraints. So Fox, PCI, consumer payments from uh, other multiple nations that we play in, we have those regulatory cybersecurity requirements. And then finally, you have the data stewardship, right, from the privacy element. We collect data from our users. And we have a responsibility from not just from our reputation saying, hey, are we doing the right thing? But also regulatory guidance that says, you are being entrusted with this data. Are you handling and protecting that data at the right size that you've told people? Are you using it in a way that you told people? Or if I want you to get rid of my data, do you have those avenues to do that? And so those three things, trust and safety, trust and civility, the data stewardship and then data security coming coming to play and that we all have to cooperate and sometimes wear multiple hats of as my partners are in this space, are we doing it in such a way that we can maximize each other's efforts to go to the ultimate experiences for our community when you create something or when you're experiencing it, or are we protecting your experience and so that you can enjoy the platform as it's intended and create and really expand and build. You bring up a good point. You guys are working cross borders and one of the trickiest things to deal with as far as in this, in this arena is, you know, we've got European privacy laws and stuff that you have to contend with. You've got, you know, you probably have a base as well in Asia and as well as a base and, and stuff too, as far as in different States now in the United States and trying to tackle all of that how do you see this kind of overlapping for you is it is it is it is it does it seem like an actually just an overmounting challenge because each and every day i sit around i see additional laws that are being that are being proposed at this point and more and more protections from there but then also you also have the fines that are increasing there so how do you how do you navigate this man so first and foremost uh that old saying no man is an island right so this is not a cyber problem. Yep. Uh, this is a business problem. So obviously, first and foremost, our legal team is right block and step with us. Uh, so we, anytime we are looking at new regulatory environments, uh, new capabilities, we are lock and step to one, ensure that we understand, right? So we have both 
uh, or in-house as well as external counsel. We also have, there is a very strong community of privacy professionals, cybersecurity professionals, legal professionals that there's a collaboration of sharing because it's we're not the only ones experiencing this, right? In tech, there's a large thing. There's a large community who, and we, we have this internal sharing. I have my own network. And so as we are building solutions, policies, workflows, as we are looking to how do we tackle this, we are going with our XFNs or cross-functional partners and making sure are we lockstep? Is there something that we're blind to? And then we look into our community as a whole and say, hey, who else is approaching this? How are you tackling this? You know, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. We're not the only ones going to face the problem alone. And so the height of arrogance is if you think you're the only one who can come up with a solution and just say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And just like iron sharpens iron, having that approaching, seeing those different opinions, that drives us to that more not only impactful solution, but also one that's malleable to the situation. As new information comes about, we can pivot and we can grow accordingly. Yep. And I think that's one of the biggest differences in how we interact in our industries. It used to be, you know, we go into our own buildings, we shut the door, locks and everything else from there. And, you know, nobody gets in, nobody gets out. You know, and that that used to be the case, but now that we are so expansive, because again, one of the things we, we like to be entertained, that's one. Two, we like ease of access, right? Yes. Which comes along with its own, you know, it, it, its own, you know, both good things and challenges with that. But two, when you're trying to do these jobs now, with the overwhelming amount of data and information and interaction stuff there, when you look at things like even global trade compliance, privacy from that development <laughs> right it is now it is it is it is community so yeah. you know to that form to my folks that are listening out there if you have been in the in a uh, if you've been in the culture that's been mostly hey we want to try to do this ourselves and not talk to anybody i, I will tell you that is a recipe for disaster now because I, yeah. you know good yeah, if I can add to that, for my mm-hmm. time at L3 Harris was the first time I saw this really impactful. So there's something called the defense industry base that did. And the there's most industries have an ISAC, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was part of the National Defense ISAC information sharing agreement. And having partners who goes and says, hey, here's our approach, uh, not only for the learning and education for new techniques, new detection, new tooling, new partnerships, but it, it gave a way that you you can see similarities and build and see, hey, what what is an effective solution? Or kind of build out or just have your like your Rolodex that built up and you have those professional network that can grow to your point, right? No one if if you're by yourself, you can only do what you know. But if you can tap into a community, if you can leverage experience, if you can see how things are going and you can have that information sharing, again, in the avenues such as you have your NDAs, you have your protections, you have that, you know, it is a safe Chatham House rules type of thing is in place. Your your ability to be exponentially more impactful is mind boggling. Yeah. And to your point, you know, with Dib, DibNet, you know, you've got your financial ISAC, right? you got the... Uh, Healthcare and um, our health ISAC and stuff too that's there. 
and then of course even your your power utilities and stuff too from that these are all resources and areas to be able to go i know that there's a lot of different conferences and stuff that are out there but i can say if you're in a particular industry definitely link up with your isacs because these are this is a conglomeration of professionals consultants and everybody who are specializing within your industry for really for you for the benefit to you right i mean at the end these are nonprofits, you know that's working within this areas and they are helping the industry themselves right and, and tailored to the problem, right? Because the financial industry is going to really approach problems slightly different than, say, tech or healthcare, or when I was in aerospace and defense, right? Your threat actors are slightly different. The data that you're protecting or the regulatory constraints that you're under are going to be slightly skewed towards what's based in the industry. Now, you might have overlap, but I do think it's really impactful of having an industry-aligned ISAC and leveraging that and then expanding to like conferences like these sides and the such where you have cyber professionals in privacy that's starting to get a little bit more in the cyber uh being that sharing and then you can expand and really right size what that network is and the ability to tap into it when you are approaching new and different situations yep I, I always found it funny because I've, I've had to hire for, I mean, probably close to six different industries, right? Yeah. And, you know, I love my aerospace and defense, you know, folks, but it is kind of funny when you first, the first time that you, that you get someone from aerospace and defense area who probably worked with weapon systems for most of their life, and then you bring them into a tech company and organization and you go, hey, we're developing, we're going to collaborate, we're going to do everything with Slack, right, at this point in time. We're doing Jira, right? There's no, there's, there's, there's no doors. It's all windows. We all want to see what's going on on that. And just the eyes, it's, it's always been the non-verbals in that. I'm like, you're going to have to be very, very flexible with what you used to do versus what you're doing today, because you're going to think they're crazy. <laughs> so, so yeah. I can, I can pull on that a little bit, right? So, you know, so I went from military air force to transition to the intelligence community to transition to the consulting world, to an engineering firm, then to a consulting world, running as a CETA contractor and just a normal contractor, to aerospace and defense, to tech. There are cultural differences, not just from we have free coffee, to how you approach cybersecurity. Yep. each of those and there is a transition from just mentality to how you rack and stack risk to what's acceptable or not acceptable to best practices not only not only from like what compliance models that you have to meet but how the organization prioritizes understanding the business drivers are very different right yes there's business drivers in government there's business mm -hmm. drivers in consulting there's business drivers in and understanding that and which impacts the risk of the data that you're protecting, who can have access to it. I mean, in aerospace and defense and government, POPs are everything. Protect your POPs at all costs. Yeah. Whereas tech, you are the internet, you are part of it. So that like bastion, you know, defense at every time you interconnect with the internet is not as either prevalent or not as as the focus because people are coming into the, the numbers, you know, that B2C type relationship 
you, you just have to not only change your mentality on like how you communicate such as Slack versus, you know, Teams or versus email versus, you know, more real time, or even just how you look at problem sets from, you know, waterfall, hey, I'm doing this really big design the next three to nine months to I'm doing in sprints of one to two weeks. If yep. I'm doing impact, you have to be at where I'm impacting. And I think if you're a cyber professional moving industries, right? So if you're trying to like get into cyber, right? There's that issue of like, can you do the same company versus make the same, same company, same industry, same, same role, right? You're trying to move to the different role, to a different company, to a different like industry. But even if you're doing the same job, you're going to have to change up how you drive to impact, how do you protect data based off of the organization and the industry, how they prioritize, what's sensitive to them, how they define prioritization of sensitivity, and how do they apply the risk to that sensitivity, like and in the protections from there. And it, it's it's mind-boggling that if you haven't had that experience, you've only been in one industry, mm -hmm. that is one of the best skills, I think, if you want to move to, you know, focus on different problems that you're going to have to have that flexibility. Right. And I can say one of our big client bases are tech companies who want to do business with the federal government or with the government. <laughs> so that is probably yeah. the, yeah, I have to say that is probably the, the, both the, it's a lucrative area, but it's probably also one of the most comical areas that you can be in. Um, what do you mean I can't use open source? Huh? <laughs> what do you mean I can't use open source? Oh my what god! What do you mean I have to have this ATO? What do you well, mean I have to only use this cloud? My totally doesn't work in the cloud. Uh, what do you mean I, can't, I have to have uh, U.S. nationals be on my coding gig? Like, uh, yeah, so it's both both things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got. I mean, you you have you have companies that are that are doing regular stuff. Let's say selling toilet paper to the U.S. Right, and they are now part of the defense industrial base. Right, so now they've been anticipating things like CMMC and NIST 8171 a and Rev three and everything else. Right, but I just remember the first thing people were like, hey, you know, a lot of tech companies will start out and they they'd be Google, they'd be Google Workspace, right, or G Suite, as it as it as it as it were. And, you know, they'd be like immediately, we have to get rid of this. I'm like, no, stop. No, you don't. You know, it's like, no, you don't. You know, when you look at this, it's how you configure it, what capabilities that you put into it, and how you say, you know what, hey, this is how we're going to manage our, our information. Here's how we're going to do and classify our, our personal information, our PII and stuff too from that, and account for also any of the NIST 800 or in some cases, organizations just said, you know what, we're going NIST 853 all the way. And, you have that. You, so it used to be just kind of talking everybody back down and moving that down. But this is our new reality too, between both our both our remote work and then the Department of Defense recognizing that there is so much that the private industry has to offer, the tech world has to offer in order to increase capabilities and time to market, time to acquire and being able to introduce those capabilities so they can use things like cloud so they can use things like you know yeah, rapid product development and stuff at this point so these are things that are coming because they want to do what you guys are doing they do yeah they do so while while at the same time really struggling with things like data sovereignty mm -hmm. right so there's data privacy about your 
individual employees, but data sovereignty, now we have like in the US, we have ITAR and EAR, right? We have yep. certain things where we want, but we're not, we're not the only ones saying, hey, these type of things, we just want the data to reside in our borders, mm -hmm. whether it's our citizens data, whether it is IP that's generated here, whether it's financial data. And yep. I think that's also another uh, paradigm shift, if you will, right? Yep. I have the privacy of the individuals in which I collect and the people I employ, right? Because those, those are different, my user data versus employee data. Yep. Then I have the data sovereignty that may or may not, especially if you're dealing with a government entity, right? They'll have restrictions, so like CUI, controlled unclassified information like the US government does, but then you have a lot of European nations that have their own kind of variation of that kind of data set. So your cloud first or cloud native applications or solutions, you might have to do something more hybrid, right? Kind of almost like you do for like PCI with the CDE. I have a certain sensitive data set that it needs to reside within some type of heightened controls, whether it's uh, geographic, or, or logical and having a trusted partner who kind of understands what those pitfalls are of if you're transitioning into this these are the considerations you don't have to go like i'm going to build an isolated air gap network in right. a physical data center outside of dulles but you might have to do these additional things that can leverage what you've already built but having that defined and right. understanding what those differences are and what the purpose and the drivers are behind that yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things when, you, when you're in that PCI, you know, environment, <laughs> finding that CDE and stuff too for that, and uh, trying to draw kind of here's here's kind of what we think of the boundary and stuff of this should be, <laughs> you know, for that as far as even the process, you know, when we look at even you know my credit card processing and stuff with that. But to your point, one of the one of the things I find in industry that there's a misconception sometimes of does this state actually necessitate a vulnerability, right? So we said ITAR and we said CUI, right? So CUI and ITAR are not the same thing, no. right? Uh, but no. the other part is, is that keeping up with where there's been changes where it used to be, oh, we can never have any ITAR information off of our, you know, off of our continental US and stuff from that. Well, they made a change back in 2020 of, hey, if you keep it encrypted and it's not going through, non-volatile memory and stuff for that and it's staying within your right you can do that but then the encryption and stuff too because that used to always be the argument of you can't use google <laughs> oh well so i remember google really pressing for that and uh -huh. working with the google cloud uh, program management team i think they did a really good job articulating like look if i can do key management you can do data sovereignty right yep. because you had a couple different approaches you had aws who said okay cool we will meet data sovereignty such as ITAR and EAR, which mm -hmm. are both export control, but different, right. different uh, one's commerce and the other state, yep. different <laughs> restrictions. And so like AWS is like, we will build physical data centers and physical locations. Whereas mm -hmm. Google said, if I allow your key management to be within your nation's borders, you use an yep. HSM, do you use, does it matter if I'm using quote unquote military grade encryption? Right, you're still using type two because you're using commercial, but if you were saying like, hey, does it matter if it's stored in Lithuanian's cloud center if they can't do anything with it unless they have from here? And, and, and I think that was well articulated, mm -hmm. but 
that was that's still considerations really now i'm yeah. sure the u.s government or other different nation states say look there's a level of sensitivity we'll still want to be able to to grab you know those, that physical media but i think it opened up a lot more organizations to go and say you can do what you need to do as long as you can articulate how you are meeting the intent of the controls you understand enough of the driving forces behind those controls to either have the appropriate considerations and the appropriate compensating controls may not maybe written one for one but this is can be translated into that and can you articulate is it defensible yeah yeah and, and they were doing that you know i remember when they first started that started diving into it where you had you know google short workloads which is kind of a precursor to now what we see both in Google Cloud Platform and then across within the Google Workspace at this point. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, the, you know, the challenge is too, is many people think it's like, well, we have to be secure. Everybody else is trying to get us, but you know, the rest of the world's perspective too on us is, well, we don't really trust you because your government can come and say, give us the information and you have to give us, you have to give them the information. That's yeah. the reverse now that we have now. Have you run? Have you been? Run, have you run into that? And what's the? So, uh, I've been at. I you know. So so you have the transatlantic information uh, agreement, and I'm not going to speak more on that from because that's more like the legal legalese part of that. And yeah. you know, I my experience with that is about like saving the Holiday Inn last night. But you know, like <laughs> I, I, you know, and, and then there's that old adage: it's not just what's legal; it's what's defensible. Yep. Right. So yet this something can be completely legal, but for the reputational harm or the regulatory risk for doing something, is it really defensible? And so having those conversations at other places that I have worked at for, if we are holding data, mm -hmm. the European Union, China, Australia, you know, it doesn't matter. And it's putting in US data centers. Right, people do, especially from law enforcement, access to that data. How do we reconcile that? Who gets access to when? It is, is a can be a minefield, and so more and more countries in the last few years have been like saying, "We want the keys to our citizens or our our type of data here. We don't want the U.S. to be able to backdoor from us." To get yeah. access to this and i think that's only going to grow right i think as i mean you even see it at state level so ohio utah they're like i want to do this yeah. and you know it's because it's funny because people think of the u.s as this monolithic the u.s is 50 different people in a trench coat <laughs> like they all have their own expectations and i so i think having more granular regional identification of where the data resides, who comes from it, and understanding that whether it, you're using encryption as your data sovereignty protection, or you're doing physical location of data, having that being conscious of that and having a plan for that is going to be more critical as more and more countries go and say, you know, the U.S. is not a vault. It is it is a peer in these type of data. We're not as comfortable it residing in there, or you have to give me these assurances that the U.S. can't circumvent our control from yeah. there. And I think 
kind of looking at my crystal ball, I think that's going to be a conversation that cyber teams are going to have to be locked and set with their legal teams to understand mm -hmm. what those regulatories are changing, what those requirements are, and then making sure not only are you compliant, but you're, it, it's a defensible stance of what you're actually implementing. Yep. And these are time-consuming conversations. Yes. When we're working with, when we're working with anything that's international, the European Union being probably the most extensive that we typically have to work with, especially yep. because we have, you know, because we have, you know, uh, uh, Germany, UK, <laughs> and you're going, and you guys agree? And then once you had the whole breakup and stuff a couple of years ago, you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it creates such a discussion, but it's such an important discussion because of how close we are when we work from an economic standpoint, customer bases and stuff too of our customers from that who are using that. And in particular, when we talk about, you know, kind of where you are, where we're talking about experiences and communities and stuff from that and making money from content and stuff from that. And then also the, you know, the, 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 the mixture of both commerce experience and everything else with that. Wow, I think that that becomes a conversation that requires very much a complete, you know, focus on okay, future-wise, what is possible, the art of the possible yeah. at this point in time, because it is. We're going to continue to get this up and down as far as on legislation and rewrite of it. You know, we had GDPR, you know, down pat. We thought for like a year, right? And then they they amended it, and you're like, oh crap. I don't know. I, I, I you know, what we're just talking about as far as again, not trusting of the U.S. and our, you know, our need and have to as far as disclosure from our American companies to, you know, to our federal government. So, you know, these things will continue to come up, and we will continue to run into it. And as my wife would say, this is a self-perpetuating industry. I was like, yeah, I. <laughs> You know, like I said, when I was in the, the task force, right, the National Interior Task Force, we used to have a saying is that when you this when you have a program and when you have a, a domain that has so many that it's it's such at an intersection point of so many different risk uh, and regulatory requirements such as employment law, national law, the, the types of data that would be exposed or who has access to it you never go into this without having your legal partners trained up educated being there with you and i also think that to the next level is that if there are key stakeholders you have to be in there shoulder to shoulder with them they have to understand you have to understand their driving point because it's really easy to think oh i'm in my little bubble and i'm driving to either execution for a particular I want to address either I'm addressing my this privacy constraint of GDPR, or I'm doing this data protection based off the confidentiality of the data, or you know whatever. You can go down a direction to either invalidate efforts by a different team, or put yourself at an exposure. So I think having that really close cross-functional partnership, understanding that this is it's not a this is not a project. You're not just going to be done. Right. You're not going to like if you do X, Y and Z, you'll be done. But understanding that it is a constantly shifting and evolving landscape. And the best you can do is drive it like a ship. Yep. You're driving to a, you know, a good place. 
point, you're going to have to make pivots as along, right? You can do kind of what is the best invention and drive to it and that's defensible, but you have to be able to slightly pivot and do corrections as new information, as new regulatory, as new constraints come into play. Um, and, and again, and learn from your peers of saying, hey, we tried this and we approached this pitfall that we weren't even aware existed and now we're having to scramble. And so then you go like, oh, I can make these changes so that I too do not fall in that same pit. But it's, this is an industry that will exist for a long time. Yeah. Because- yeah. And we keep intersecting, we keep intersecting. Um, yes. You know, over the, you know, probably over the last five years, it's it's been the work uh, along with OFAC now too. When we talk about our different electronic capabilities, so that is that is yep. really what we're talking about more of the, the the office of foreign asset control, right? Which deals with uh, yeah. business with sanctioned parties and embargo countries, right? Yep. And now you've got that intersection because when we start talking about things like e-commerce, software as a service, connected platforms, and technology from that, you know. From a U.S. company standpoint, as well as foreign company that does business with the U.S., there are certain rules you have to go under as far as being able to screen sanctioned parties from having access to your technology, uh, as yep. well as prohibiting embargo countries from being able to connect to your platforms. Only thing is, is that it, it's not just us delivering stuff to a physical address. This extends into our meta world and into our our. Our, our, you know, more of our, our, our technology and interconnected world that we have now. And, and think of it, think of the story for like PGP, mm-hmm. right? With the whole encryption being embargoed. Yep. And the efforts towards that, right? There was this significant cultural shift and which pushed the regulatory, I think it was an ITOR that restricted to 64 bits. That is correct. And, yeah. yep. and then we, to do PGP, they basically, printed it and then shipped it to other countries and scanned it to have the code. There is information, right? We're seeing this with generative AI mm-hmm. as, as being a great example. It is exploding and growing and governments are trying to constrain it for both good and, you know, uh, possibly conservative views on it. And, and I, I mean that from being like, from, from a risk standpoint. Oh, no, I uh, conservative. Yeah. And of kind of like, look, this this can grow and, and trying to catch up with regulations, trying to catch up with guidance for something that is already having significant both technological and cultural impact. And to do that, to keep up with that, right? Um, because we because we're being pushed to, hey, all companies are saying, hey, what kind of tech? Even Microsoft, you know, with their integrating to. I believe their OpenAI chat GPT, they're going to start offering that as a service to their office uh, platform. Mm-hmm. But then you have like China coming out and saying, well, we need to make sure that the data this was trained on people consented to, that you can train on their data or that we need to make sure. And then having that retroactively try to be compliant or abide by the regulatory documentation that's being caught up. I think that's something that all organizations are going to just have to be cognizant. And again, I can't speak to that because there's people who <laughs> who have a lot more letters behind their name who just focus on that. But like, like it, if you tried to do this by yourself, you'd be drowned really quickly. Looking at where we came from to yep. today, <laughs> and 
just the sheer amount of volume that we have to think about as far as the as far as the different let's say I say finable <laughs> areas that we fall into as one but then the other part is like you mentioned earlier damage to your you know damage to your reputation and stuff too for that and then again continue to keep the confidence of your user base of your customers and clients and stuff from that it is there's there, there's challenges abound but it is you can't go at it alone it, it really is a collaboration to, to really be able to address this and then also to continue to innovate you know you can't hide it you can't you know you can't hide it. You can't be in the, in the back that nobody looks at anymore. It's it's right out front now. It, it's funny because I see like my own career in mm -hmm. cyber being parallel to like the maturity and how cyber has the concept of cyber evolved. So I joined in at Air Force in 2004 and mm -hmm. was networking systems. And it was all about isolation. It was all about having physical data physically in places. Then yep. there was the evolution of granting access interconnecting but controlling those interconnections so at the network level so pushing people from you know plain text authentication from like telnet to ssh and import export you know ingress egress rule sets then to going saying well i need to actually once you're in past those holds i need the actual controls of the the servers and the systems themselves and so doing more access controls rbac and then potentially avac from mm -hmm. there to going and saying, okay, now you have access, I'm confirming where you should have access, you know, the whole promise of zero trust to saying, yeah. okay, well, now our data is, we can't just stop at what we control, The what we're trying to protect is the information itself. And now the information is being shared, is expanding, has well, your IRM, your DRM type of methodology, your who has accesses. And so we focus and, and evolved a little bit more on the protection of the data itself. And now kind of coming to where I'm at now to the generation of the data. So going to the production and application, and I'm not a production or application security architect, but I do partner with them because that initial collection, the generation, the modification at, as you're putting stuff to the main branch, right? That in and of itself is now the forefront of cybersecurity, right? We have this concept of shift left, and I think it's more than just a marketing material, is like getting to the nexus of the creation of data from a privacy from a security, from a compliance standpoint. So it has been fun of like seeing kind of have my career from that network of systems to, to access controls, to encryption, to management, to now going to not only the data, but how we generate, create, tag, identify, and then going saying, do I want to, you know, when I do this, what do I do with it? Am I hashing it? Am I keeping it in plain text? Am mm -hmm. I encrypting it? Am I tokenizing it? What am I going to do with it? Do I have the authority to do what I think I'm going to do with it? Who am I going to grant access to it? And so getting it to the nexus of that initial generation or copying, right? I think that is where we're seeing almost like your, what's what's the point we, we all talk about technologists and not the event horizon, but where the point of singularity, mm -hmm. right? From a security and privacy and, and governance standpoint is as we are generating data, determining its sensitivity, determining its impact, determining the authorization to have it has been extremely fascinating. And I think that is where the real growth 
from all of our professions is going to. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And it's it's escalated in speed, you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the point of singularity that, that we've been hearing yeah. since the 80s, right? <laughs> Uh-huh. When, when you're generating innovation at a speed to where you're doing everything you can to make sure that innovation doesn't become the Frankenstein monster, okay. right? That we as Frankenstein are building these things, our creation can get out of, you know, out of our hands. So having to keep up with that accelerating innovation, right, I think is, is going to be the next great challenge as cybersecurity professionals that mm-hmm. is having to do partners with these other professions yep and even with the speed you know you, each time you each time we come up we come up with another topic or an area to really address there you know we start our, our partner comes like, up with a new matter yeah they come up with a new quadrant, <laughs> right and then now i'm seeing these you know these comparisons between who's further along in quantum right now and you're like <laughs> Can we, can we just, can we, I guess we can't stop. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to stop. We're, we're going to keep going because, you know, no matter what the, the, the additional capability and service and, you know, ecosystems that we're serving content and stuff too, that's associated with that. Well, the amount of security that we got to pile on top of that also becomes a matter of, can we process all that? Do we have the hardware? Do we have the, the capability to do that and continue to make that fast and and available and you know high fidelity and stuff too from that and it just keeps driving it just keeps driving you know i I look at even the pcs that i bought six months ago and people are like hey it's running too slow for us i'm like that's your network i'm like that's your network (laughs) (laughs) you know and and that in itself becomes a point right to where every time we make an advancement in a particular domain or different region we find new choke points Right. Yep. It used to be like the network was the choke point. And mm-hmm. as we went through different cat levels to be faster and faster, and we went with the, the fiber, then we're like, okay, well, the cards themselves or the processing power or, you know, so not only doing that, but trying to make sure that as we interject security, good governance, good data stewardship, as well as the ability to, to moderate and protect, we have to make sure that we're not the choke point or people right. are going to completely circumvent us. Like, I I have to do this. So either you can keep up or I'm going to leave you behind. And I think that is my biggest, I think it's our biggest challenge. It's not, do we have the right people in the room, but can we keep up with this innovation? Because if we don't, we're going to be completely bypassed. Yeah, and that is the pressure. Uh, that is the, I would say that is the pressure that's on the pot right now. And it just continues to cook. And we, we have to figure out as far as on what is our game plan each and every day. And I can't even say game plan anymore, to be honest with you. Because, you know, you know, we used to sit around and we do this planning for like a month and a half and stuff. You can't even do that anymore. So it's funny, like, again, going from like yeah. the aerospace and defense where you're like, okay, I'm going to plan out what 2024 is going to look like, 2025. Uh-huh. Now I'm in meetings with my teams and it's like, all right, what's our spread? Yep. What, what, what's your last week showing? What are you doing this week? And can you keep up with that level of innovation? And it does take some retooling of how you approach a problem. It's been feedback that I've been getting from my peers, my management is being like, be comfortable with an MVP. You know, don't let, you know, in the military, we have a saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Right. And I think as 
you know, as we approach this, that's a lot of us are just going to have to be comfortable with a good enough solution that is right. You know, we, we, we usually say our, our focus specifically for data security is to right size security professionals based off of the sensitivity and risk. We need the right time our security solutions as being like, it's not perfect, but I don't have the time to build a great solution. I have, a per I have the time to build what I'm, my, my peers, my acceptants are asking for, and then iterate on that. And that is a very different perspective than I had in the government, in aerospace defense, and networking. But I feel like if I don't have that, I will be left behind and I won't be partnered with. And I won't be able to actually drive that impact to having good data security that at the level that it needs to be. I'll be just constantly trying to catch up. Yep. Yeah. Somebody once called it. It's like we have a dynamic backlog. <laughs> <laughs> dynamic backlog. Protect that. We have a dynamic that's... backlog. I'm like, oh my gosh. Does it just grow? <laughs> <laughs> Gross. It just grows, you know, you, you have one idea, then you have another one, you're like, man, I got this story, it's got good, okay, you're in activities, there's a backlog, but this takes priority today. Okay, that's, you know, we just grew the backlog again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, yeah. what needs to be dropped? Yeah, right? yeah like, drop I can't prioritize that, and being able to clearly communicate, and I think this is actually a really key principle for all cybersecurity professionals that regardless whether you're in GRC, AppSec, operations, um, security engineering, is how to articulate and prioritize and going in when your priority shifts, communicating, okay, this jumps up to a Z, uh, to a priority zero, this is gonna drop down and that's gonna go. And being able to communicate and having that, like I can't, you know, it's like when you squeeze a balloon, air is going to go a different direction so if you want me to go here you're going to understand these are coming in and being able to do that quickly and communicating that is also a skill i think regardless of the domain within cyber you're doing is a skill that i've had to learn as i've had to increase my pace and still working on to this day but i think it has been serving me much better and it's something that i would love to push back to my younger self in government of saying being able to do that I think would solve <laughs> you know a, a lot of my previous problems I had yep well man we have reached our uh, I don't know we did great we went eight minutes over that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome That's all for this episode of The Lojo Show. If you want to see updates on the show, its upcoming guests, and more, follow our LinkedIn or our new Twitter page. If you have questions for Lojo or want to come on the show, you can send us an email at officiallojoshow at gmail.com or join our new Discord server. You have to follow our LinkedIn page to learn how to join. With that, we will say goodbye, have a great week, stay safe, and stay secure.